Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that right now you navigate to the show notes for this episode where you are going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. Today, we'll discuss Elon Musk possibly being forced to buy Twitter and the end of the Supreme Court term. But first, let's go briefly around the world. A couple of things happening regarding a former world leader and uh, a current and soon-to-be former world leader. The first, uh, I think we should acknowledge the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was shot and killed while he was giving a speech in support of his political party in Japan, uh, who, as Dan noted to us just before we started, uh, the elections have happened and his party did very, very well in those elections. Uh, We do not know a whole lot about the 41-year-old person who uh, is the accused assassin at this point in time, but we certainly do know uh, that Shinzo Abe was an incredibly important figure in uh, not only world politics, but certainly in Japanese politics. Dan, um, why don't we start with you? For people who may not be familiar with Abe, can you give them a little bit of a background on who Shinzo Abe was and why he was so important? So Shinzo Abe was was Japan's longest-serving prime minister. Four uh, terms, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Um and he was uh, part of an uh, immensely um, long politi- political lineage in Japan. His grandfather uh, was also prime minister of Japan from 1957 to 1960 and was involved in the Japanese occupation of uh, Manchuria uh, during uh, Imperial Japan prior to uh, World War II. Um, Abe represents um, a very conservative faction within Japan's uh, liberal party. Um, Japan has essentially been um, a one-party state since it's been a democracy, but it's been a democratic. There have been opposition governments that have briefly come into power. So it's it's not a case of, you know, fixed elections or anything like that. But he leads an extremely broad coalition in which he represented the most conservative uh, portion of that. Um, So he instituted a series of economics reforms that helped, uh, uh, you know, Japan's economy is – helped stabilize Japan's economy, if not return it to positive growth. Um, he's also been a subject of a lot of debate and controversy um, in the broader world because of his support of some historical revisionism about Japan's history in the Second World War and uh, has been, uh, you know, visited, you know, shrines that are controversial in much of the world that honor Japan's war dead, including um, some of which are war criminals. So 
he is a bit of a Japanese nationalist. He was somebody who was in favor of Japan's remilitarization and a strong presence for Japan in the in the region, particularly to counter China. Um, and his assassination um, is, you know, tragic. Um, he was sort of a giant of a figure, even if you disagreed with him, um, and certainly a very capable statesman. And I'm I'm curious as to whether or not these latest round of elections in which Abe's party performed very well will lead to perhaps a change in Japan's constitution, which is technically pacifist now, although there have been there have been members in Abe's wing of the party that have wanted to revise that constitution and bring about a more explicit remilitarization in Japan in order primarily to counter the emerging threat from China. Yeah, that seems to be, you know, that seems to make sense to me. The, you know, we have, we've obviously allowed uh, some remilitarization in Germany. And in fact, we were celebrating, uh, some people were celebrating, I should say, uh, Germany's willingness uh, seemingly to be supportive of Ukraine against Russia. Um, you know, do I envision any kind of a Tojo's Japan-like threat from the nation of Japan right now? Well, certainly not. And I think given what we're seeing transpire in that region, not only with North Korea, but also, of course, with China, it you know that would seem to be something that does make sense, that the concerns that we would have had in the late 1940s and early 50s about Japan after that period of time don't currently exist. Um, so it, it, it does seem to be something that from a uh, international or at least from an American perspective seems to be sensible. And Japan has already begun um, increasing spending on its self-defense forces. Yeah, I think it's the, like the eighth largest military in the world despite being pacifist. Yes. So it's it, pacifist in name only if that's a thing. Yeah. And so part of, part of this is tied into those other issues of how does Japan deal with its imperial legacy? Because part of the pacifist nature of the Japanese constitution more so than prohibiting, you know, let's say the raising of troops or the buying of equipment is a repudiation of that imperial past. And a lot of folks see that not so much as a debate about the size or even the scope of military, but a question that's deeply rooted in these cultural and historical debates within Japanese life as to how to view that imperial period. And if Japan should indeed uh, is it, if it, is it incumbent upon Japan to in some way repudiate that sort of martial legacy? Another aspect of this that I think is worth noting um, is that this was uh, this attack happened with a homemade firearm. Um, I, I don't know the specifics, but um, there's you know very restrictive uh, gun ownership in Japan. I believe um, there are two. Uh, homicides by firearm recorded in Japan right. in the last year. I mean, most people cannot own a gun, not even, you know, whether they want to or not. So the the pacifism, um, partly, you know, they lost World War II, right? They were bombed. Um, innocent people were wiped out in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they said, okay, that's it. We're done with war. And, of course, the world also told them, that's it. You're done with war. Yeah. Um, but that there's an internal side to that as well, that, like, we're not— we're not doing this anymore. We're done with guns. Um, uh, and 
And here we live in a world now where you can go to YouTube and find a recipe, you know, or get your 3D printer or whatever the case may be, and you can make that gun if you really want it. Um, It's something that, in addition to, I mean, just the the tragedy of, a, a, you know, as Dan said, a world leader, agree with him or not, um, with this very huge legacy in Japan, um, there is this, you know, very clear crack in uh, the status quo um, for people of Japan. And it's sort of thing that we see, you know, not in that specific way, but all around the world, a lot of what everyone has just presumed is normal and is always going to persist, uh, once again, proves to be far more fragile uh, than everyone anticipated. Yeah, uh- People who, at least in the, back in the American context here real quick, uh, remark about how bad the times are right now. One of the first places that my mind always goes when I hear that kind of rhetoric is to the late night, well, to the 1960s and into the early 1970s, where we had this spate of political assassinations. And I, I just, I shudder to think how the brains of a lot of Americans would break if we had to endure anything like we saw in the 1960s right now. The assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, the assassinations in 1968 of Robert F. Kennedy and of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, There were assassination attempts on numerous other people. You can even go forward into the 70s, into the 80s, Malcolm X. Um, There was an assassination attempt on Gerald Ford. There was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Uh, And we really have not seen anything like that. You know, the, the closest that, you know, again, comes immediately to mind is the person showing up in front of Brett Kavanaugh's house who then walked in the other direction and called the police himself. Uh, so I, you can, again, trying to understand how startling it would be for, you know, uh, the, if George W. Bush or Barack Obama to, would, would be assassinated is probably the closest comparison we could make to uh, Shinzo Abe being killed. But again, as you point out, the circumstances internally there are so incredibly different. So we always have to point out that gun culture, the Second Amendment, all of these things differentiate America from most other countries and make a lot of these comparisons to me not irrelevant, but just, you know, you are, you're not comparing apples to oranges, you're comparing apples to pork loin in a sense. It's just, it, you, can, you can think of them in, in the same context of food, but they are incredibly different and are going to be incredibly different for reasons not only having to do with the law and constitution, but just having to do with the culture and society of Japan versus the United States or Sweden versus the United States as we often get these kinds of comparisons. One of the interesting things, historical things to note is... Um you know, political assassinations are very rare in Japan since since the war. Um, and and the last one that I could remember was in 1960, when the Japanese Socialist Party leader was assassinated in a live presidential debate. Um, but he was assassinated by uh, sword uh, in that debate. So to give people an idea of for a long time how 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 Different the structure of violence and political violence, which which you know has also existed in tragic spats in Japan before. Um, how rare that is! I'm going to make a couple of notes here before we move on to the next world leader we need to discuss. Um, I said 
at the beginning that we do not know a whole lot about the man who has been arrested for the assassination of Shinzo Abe. We do know a little bit um, from this uh, from the Morning Dispatch newsletter here I have in front of me. Uh, the shooter, an unemployed former member of the country's maritime self-defense force, used a homemade gun in the attack and reportedly told law enforcement officials that he targeted Shinso Abe for promoting a religious group that the suspect's mother made enormous donations to before going bankrupt. That religious group is the Unification Church. Uh, the Unification Church, of course, um, also known as the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, founded in South Korea by the late Sung Myung Moon, um, the Moonies, if you're otherwise uh, unfamiliar with that church. Um, so that is, again, that is the limited amount of information that we know at this point in time. The the other thing that I want to note, I don't know if anybody saw, uh, probably the most prominent journalistic entity that is you know, not its own instantiated newspaper, the Associated Press. If anybody saw the obituary for Shinzo Abe by the Associated Press, it was disgusting. Um, just the having to force into it, again, as, as we talked about – Somebody being very conservative in a Japanese context is different than uh, being very conservative in an American context. And the way that I read it was just the shoehorning in of this trying to transliterate American political concepts into Japanese political concepts and calling him ultra conservative and pointing out, oh, that he was, you know, he was very friendly with Donald Trump. It was the kind of thing where, you know, I'm just amazed it made it past an editor. But with any world leader like that, the obituaries for all of these people are already written. So it tells you something about the pre to me about the pre written obituary for Shinzo Abe that it was essentially could be read to me as a political attack from an American journalistic entity on a foreign leader in how just lacking in any sense of fairness and objectivity in writing the obituary for a leader like Shinzo Abe was. And there's a strange way in which the American press can characterize foreign leaders, even extremely popular foreign leaders, as quote-unquote extreme. Abe was Japan's longest-serving prime minister who led for many years, Japan's dominant party. Now, you can agree with Shinzo Abe on economic issues, on historical issues, or disagree. But there is no question that he was not anything like a fringe figure in Japanese life. This is a man that was very much at the center of Japanese politics for the past 20 years. And the idea that you can devalue and dismiss leaders that may be different than what we would like as fringe, despite immense public popularity, immense outpourings of social solidarity we've seen in Japan for, um, for Shinzo Abe's family. Um, this is, uh, this is a, a, a troubling trend in the American press. The, I'll just give you the lead of this piece. Shinzo Abe was a political blue 
blood groomed for power, Japan's longest-serving prime minister. He was also perhaps the most polarizing, complex politician in recent Japanese history. Uh, If I jump down a little further here, Abe was a darling of conservatives but reviled by many liberals in Japan. And no policy was more divisive than his cherished, ultimately successful dream to revise Japan's war-renouncing constitution. His ultra-nationalism also angered the Koreans and China, both wartime victims of Japan. Again, this is in a obituary. Uh, where, you know, in, in any sense, any political leader is going to have what you could term a complicated legacy because they're going to do a whole lot of things while they are in office, including the one we're going to move on to talk about in a moment here in Boris Johnson and how we would think about Boris Johnson after his passing. But to, to again, to write it in this kind of a way and again from American publication, the use of conservative and liberal – which to American readers, which suggest certain things that to me, this piece is entirely lacking in putting in the context of Japanese society and politics and ultra nationalism. Again, this, I mean, this is big, one of my big problems with the debates that we have had about nationalism over the last six years or so. It's not the text of it. It's the context of it. We were only talking about it in an American sense because Donald Trump stumbled on this word and decided to start using it without a developed understanding of what it actually is. And maybe I'm being unfair in my reading of the Associated Press here, but the terminology being used without any attempt to contextualize it for Japanese society reads to me like it's being pushed through an American political lens. And I don't think that that anybody's being really well served by this. At the very least, you would think like basic journalistic method would say, hey, if you have an opinion about Shinzo Abe... Uh, in relation to Korea or Japan, perhaps you should interview a Korean or sorry, or China or Chinese person and get a quote, yeah. <laughs> right? And or, let them say it or even in their own words. One of the small things too, ultra-nationalism, right? So I, I'm recalling there was uh, in, in the 60s, William F. Buckley was on an episode of Rowan and Martin's Laughing. And one of the questions he's asked about is, um, you know, somebody says something about ultra conservatives. Um, what is uh, what would an ultra liberal be like? And Buckley's response is, there's no such thing as an ultra liberal. The New York Times wouldn't permit it. And it very much that rings in my ears when I read that the use of ultra as a modifier there. Um, seems strikes me as very loaded and an attempt to make something seem much worse because of the way we've been talking about things like nationalism in an American context, again, without any contextualization for Japanese society. We should move on and talk about the other world leader we wanted to discuss, which is Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, who has agreed to resign Uh, pending the Conservative Party, the Tories picking somebody else to lead them. Uh, All of this is is very fascinating to me. Uh, There's something about the structure of the British parliamentary system and the way that you can push somebody like Boris Johnson out. And what I thought was also interesting, if you go back and you listen to the speech that he gave, uh, he was very much making like an American style political argument for why he should stay in power, which is that I have this mandate from the people of Great Britain that kind of supersedes the political dynamics of the party in a parliamentary system, which in a sense may be true, but it also doesn't matter 
because it is a parliamentary system and they can decide to push him out if they want to. Uh, my, you know, my understanding of how we got here with Boris Johnson is that it was a, a death of a th- political death of a thousand cuts, that there have been a lot of just small scandals that have added up over time. There is, of course, him hosting parties at Ted Downing Street while the rest of the country was shut down. I think this is remarkable in the sense that we have plenty examples of politicians in the United States who did pretty much exactly the same thing. Gavin Newsom dining at the French Laundry, just to take one example there. And it really hasn't cost a single one of them. It really hasn't cost a single one of them at all. The other, uh, which is the uh, really alleged final straw for Boris Johnson, is just a little too BBC miniseries to actually be believable that it was the elevation of a member of parliament to the position of whip. Uh, This person is an MP by the name of Pincher, and he is the subject of numerous allegations of sexual harassment against male uh, individuals. And allegedly Boris Johnson's, again, knowing line about him is a pincher by name, pincher by habit. Uh, So his prevarication on how much they knew about this is, again, one of the many things that has added up to him agreeing to resign uh, from the uh, premiership in the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson has always been a personality more than anything else. He's been a writer, a speaker, he's captivating, he's engaging, and he's charismatic. And the Conservative Party needed such a figure coming out of Theresa May's premiership because the Conservative Party was deeply divided about Brexit, which it had, which its constituencies had supported and which many of its parliamentary members did not. Uh, Prime Minister Cameron put this up to a referendum, um, and Boris Johnson was elevated to the leadership largely to lead that through. He became yep. the symbol for those those Brexit force pro Brexit forces. It, it is. It should be noted that Brexit cost two conservative prime ministers their premiership. First, David Cameron, who put it up for a vote, and then when it passed, realized I can no longer lead this party since he was opposed to Brexit. And then Theresa May, who was in, proved incapable of actually getting Brexit done. Um, so there is, some, I think, some truth to the idea that only Boris Johnson uh, could really make this happen, and, and he did. We don't have counterexamples. There's no historical counterexample to point to. But he did get it done. But after that, what the Johnson agenda was is up for grabs. He certainly ran on certain things. The pandemic derailed, like it derailed many politicians' plans, uh, his plans. But he's always been a bit of a chameleon. I mean, the the fact that he is he is the one that that negotiated Brexit and was also mayor of London, the most anti-Brexit place in the United Kingdom um, when they had the, 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 the referendum um, is indicative of the fact that, you know, he has always he has always been able to sort of position himself in, in, in a way to um, 
advance his own career, if not necessarily any sort of consistent agenda. I still am puzzled as to how Boris Johnson remained in office as long as he did. And this might just be that I'm an American and all I see are certain aspects of the British press and our own media doesn't really know what to make of him. But I don't think I've ever read a positive thing about Boris Johnson. Like anytime there's news about Boris Johnson, it's never positive. And yet the man managed to remain prime minister for far longer than I would have expected. Um, however, if we take, you know, a little bit more of the, the helicopter view of things, um, it is interesting to ask, well, what will his legacy be? Um, he negotiated Brexit when no one else could. Um, COVID, you know, despite the hypocrisy of, you know, private parties and that sort of thing, the United Kingdom uh, will be remembered and, you know, should be remembered as one of the nations that handled COVID the best in the world. They got people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, they were one of the first nations to say, look, we have everything available to deal with this. Now it's up. It's in people's hands. We're going to live with it. We're going to go back to, you know, the, the closest you can say, you, know, you can't say back to normal. I don't like that phrase, but we're going to we're going to normalize um, the new circumstance uh, in the, this post pandemic era. Um, I, that can't be taken from him. Uh, whatever eccentricities the man has, um, whatever genuine failures, um, of his government, I, you know, in the history books, those two things are going to stand out. Now there's people, of course, who think, uh, he could have done it better in terms of the way the country handled COVID. Some cases they say it was too restrictive. Other people criticize from the other direction. Um, and of course, Brexit is still a deeply divisive issue uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, nevertheless, I think he will be important um, and he will be remembered for these very real, concrete things rather than just someone who everybody hated and he was prime minister for a year or two and then he was outed. Uh, as sometimes happens. Um, this is a man with real accomplishments, even if he may not have any kind of actual ideology driving any of it. You alluded to uh, something we can draw back to the conversation we just had about Shinzo Abe, which is that Americanized view of all of this, that you got all of these, you know, because there were related and semi-similar phenomenons happening in many places around the world. Um, and there is just an... an this draw, especially from the media, to push everything through a very American-centric view, that you got all of these, you know, how you know Brexit is a phenomenon similar to Donald Trump, and how Boris Johnson is is the United Kingdom's Donald Trump, and these are strained analogies at best that really fail to understand the internal dynamics of the countries in which they're happening and the individuals about which they are speaking. Um, so, yeah, I think the question about his legacy is certainly going to be an interesting one. We have, uh, you know, it, it is not uncommon through British history to have, you know, the 
Cameron served. I can't remember how many years Cameron served, but it was for a while. Uh, Theresa May did not last long. Boris Johnson lasted about three years. Um, you know, the Iron Lady is the exception to British history for serving as long as she did in that kind of a system where all it takes is, you know, pushing uh, enough people wanting to push the prime minister out and that is going to happen. Um, I, I also think that this is another way to bring it back to the way that we think about things in American politics. There is um, – this is an observation many people have made, but we do not have a parliamentary system in this country. But it sure seems like a whole lot of people wish that we did. Um, they want to elect a party and then that party gets to do pretty much whatever it wants until there's another election and you can potentially replace them. That is not the kind of system that we have in the United States. I think you can also connect this to a lot of the demands that were made of people who were officials within the Trump administration that, you know, why are they still there? Shouldn't they all resign? And that would make sense if like we saw what happened here with Boris Johnson, if the whole cabinet were – if they all resigned, that what that meant is effectively the end of Donald Trump's presidency. But it doesn't. There's almost nothing you can do to get rid of a president of the United States short of impeachment and conviction and removal from office or in the case of, say, Richard Nixon – making enough of a compelling case to the man that he needs to resign. And it is one of the reasons why I I think the – I heard a podcast interview with a guy named Tim Miller who is a former Republican political operative. He writes for The Bulwark now and of talking about this you – know, I can't remember the exact title of the book, but it's almost kind of drawing from the OJ, you know, if I did it, how we did it I think is um, is what it's called. And he has basically no patience whatsoever for the people who were in the Trump administration under the argument that, you know, well, I'm trying to prevent all of the other bad things that could happen because they recognize the kind of character that Donald Trump had. I think the reason I have more patience for that argument is the understanding that if you just left him surrounded by, you know, instead of A or B players around him, uh, very serious people – he would be surrounded by C or D or F players, not the end of his presidency, right? It, it, we do not have a parliamentary system. And I think that is another case where uh, an American audience should think a little more clearly about the differences between our political system and the British political system. One of the other things that I think is, is, is helpful to take away from this is just how broad – the Conservative Party in Britain is. This is a very large coalition with people who differ on a great many things. We talked about this in terms – even Brexit itself, which the party itself ran on putting it on the ballot, did. It passes the referendum and then there's still lingering party division over this. It is a very broad party. Um, and one of the reasons that it's a broad party is this sort of Westminster-style system encourages that. The other is that the British Labour Party has sort of self-marginalized itself for years and has sort of anchored itself on the extreme left of British political life, very much different from the party of Tony Blair or Gordon yeah, it, Brown. Yeah, making uh – 
uh, making a socialist anti-Semite the leader of your party tends to have that effect. Yeah. yeah. And you, I mean, you have you have minor regional parties. You have the Liberal Democratic Party, which has its own idiosyncri- idiosyncratic uh, uh, the uh, position in British politics. But I mean, and this is this is you know when when you have these changes in prime ministers within a single party, that represents sort of real substantive change because there are different currents in the party and different um, alliances there. And so you could you we could have a very different premiership coming out of this leadership contest than we did under Johnson, even if it remains a conservative party premier. I said that some of the elements of this uh, were evocative of more of BBC drama than of actual politics. So as we close this section, I uh, will end it with uh, a small inside joke for a uh, what I assume will be a small number of people out there in response to what Dan just said. You may very well think that. I couldn't possibly comment. Let's move on to Elon Musk now. So Elon Musk, we found out last week that uh, he is – withdrawing from his attempt to purchase Twitter. And the interesting story here to me is uh, not that it ended up this way. Uh, I think I probably I believe I'm on record on this program of saying I doubt it would actually happen. I had a piece in the Detroit News not that long ago making the argument that even if he did buy it, it's probably not going to change Twitter all that much. Um, In fact, if anything in Twitter has changed, I think it has probably already happened just because of the prospect of Elon Musk purchasing it. Uh, I've, you know, I've been dubious on the whole concept of shadow banning and all of that stuff for a long time. I, I think, you know, it, it's amazing how all the people who tweet about being shadow banned, I see their tweets, uh, which suggests to me that perhaps it is uh, their own um, perception of what is going on rather than any reality. But I digress. You mean if if no one likes or retweets what I post, I'm not shadow banned? Yeah. I mean, maybe you're tweets are just not good. Maybe. Uh, Maybe I'm boring. (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, like I only have uh, like, you know, 1900 people who follow me, which is in a bit in some regard remarkable. But I don't know how many people actually care that much about my tweets about the New York Rangers, which is about the only thing that I tweet about. But what is interesting here, I'll give you the, um, the lead here from this piece in the Wall Street Journal. With Elon Musk attempting to terminate his $44 billion takeover of Twitter, And the company vowing to force him to follow through, the social media powerhouse and the world's richest person appear headed for a messy courtroom battle. The company says it plans legal action and is any day expected to file a lawsuit in the Delaware Court of Chancery, arguing he is required to close the agreed upon deal. Corporate law experts say Twitter appears to be on sounder legal footing than Mr. Musk, who accused the company of breaching their contract. The bigger question, they say is if Twitter succeeds in court, is it really possible to force the eccentric billionaire, known for eschewing norms, even when it gets him in legal trouble, to buy a company he doesn't want to own? And I'll give you this quote in here from uh, Zohar Gosen, who's a professor of transactional law at Columbia Law School. Quote, what are they going to do if there's a judgment and he says, well, I'm still not going to buy it? They really don't have tools to force him to go through with it. You don't put people in jail because they don't buy something. This is somewhat fascinating, uh, the idea that they want to sue to force him 
to buy something that he now says he doesn't want to own. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it, but I will just I'll only offer that people uh, a lot of people, I think, have a misunderstanding of why contracts exist. Contracts exist to tell you how to get out of them. That is the purpose of contractual agreements. Yes, there are parts in there that lay out the things that you're supposed to do, but it also gives you the ways that they can be breached and the ways that they can be broken and that other parties can get out of them and how you solve those problems. But the idea that you would sue uh, to force someone to complete the contract is strikes me as novel. I think it speaks to what a different position Twitter is in now than when these discussions began. Because Twitter very fiercely rejected this, very fiercely opposed the idea of a bid from Musk, did everything that it could. Tried to give him a seat on the board to keep him from buying more shares, yeah. Yeah. Um, the market position of Twitter is very different, and that price as a result is much more attractive. And that that purchase price may be the highest price that one ever can fetch now. Um, I don't think that there is a real business model for Twitter. It's, it's extremely fun. It's extremely interesting. Uh, it can be enraging. But I don't think that as an investor, you are going to see the kind of price that Musk is offering for a very long time. And I mean, I think that this is this is the idea to force the sale and maybe not even to force the sale, but to force a larger settlement for the breach. Because, you know, there was an out clause in this contract that one could pay. There is in every contract. And Twitter is not content to settle for that because I think they believe and probably rightly that a combination of this and market conditions has of this whole controversy with Musk and market conditions has led to substantial erosion of Twitter's value. And they want to at least be able to recoup some of that through litigation. And maybe the way they think that they can best reach that settlement is to shoot for the stars for that purchase price. Yeah, I just I'm still just fascinated by the dynamic that, you know, several months ago when Musk first proposed this, Twitter did not want it, or at least the certain board members, whatever the case. Um, and now he doesn't want Twitter. <laughs> and they're trying, you know, like the, the tables have turned uh, in this very fascinating it way. It sounds like the description of a ridiculous toxic relationship, right? Where, you know, at first one resists and then it's like, no, now that I don't want you anymore, I have to have you. Yeah, it just, <laughs> it's it, ridiculous. It feels almost cartoonish, too. You know, like like this is the sort of like corporate thing that happens in a movie, not in real life or whatever. But it, apparently it is happening in real life to some degree. Um, it made me think a little bit, um, and I don't have like a fully developed thought here, but a little bit of uh, Milton Friedman's uh, infamous essay, uh, The Social Responsibility of Businesses to Maximize Its Profits in the New York Times Magazine. Now, his point was not that they should do whatever it takes to mac maximize profits, but that they should do so within ethical norms, within the the bounds of the law, um, but that the duty of a CEO is to those shareholders, um, not to whatever 
political agenda they may happen to support. So hijacking their company, um, using its resources to promote whatever social justice issue or something like that uh, is, in fact, unethical. It's, it's, a, it's a misappropriation of the funds. And if they want to support something like that, well, they have an income and they can use their own resources on their own time to do that. And you see almost maybe a little bit of that, that early on, I mean, you, you get this offer, I think even months ago, it was a ridiculously high offer from Musk. Um, you know, something that none of these people could ever have expected reasonably uh, beforehand. And they resist it, um, in part because of very politically motivated resistance. Um, and now we see a little bit of remorse that, oh, shoot, we had this opportunity for literally billions of dollars, and we kind of blew it. Um, and we didn't just blow it for us. We blew it for all these shareholders. Um, so I think whatever the case, uh, it'll be interesting to see Twitter's tra trajectory. Um, I mean, I'll probably still use it <laughs> um, just because, you know, where else am I going to tweet stuff? Um it's not full of conspiracy theorists and whatever else, other nonsense that goes on on a lot of alternative sites. Um, I, you know, it's it's also a great little finger on the pulse of the press and you know things that we've talked about on past episodes. Uh, despite all of the the nastiness that one can encounter there as well, um, so it serves a purpose, but it's a pretty narrow purpose. There are a few people like me that are just curious to put journalists and celebrities in a fishbowl and <laughs> see what they show us. Um, and and that's healthy. I'm very glad that most people are not like me <laughs> and don't, don't even participate in Twitter at all. That's good for them. Um, so, yeah, we'll see, you know, how the business world, how the investing world uh, looks at Twitter in the light of this. No matter how this lawsuit goes, um, it can't be good for Twitter. I'm going to give you a section of this that, that sticks out to me because as somebody who has uh, run digital marketing for a number of years and Twitter um, has been a part of that, but it for me has never been the focus of a lot of that for a whole lot of reasons that we don't need to get into right now. But this also from this Wall Street Journal article, Mr. Musk's team says Twitter's longtime estimate that fewer than 5% of its monetizable daily active users are spam accounts appears inaccurate and therefore could represent a, quote, material adverse effect. Under this concept, a buyer must show that a company's actual business differs dramatically from what it agreed to buy. It is a high bar that very few buyers who have gotten cold feet have ever successfully invoked. One of the things to me that uh, I've never really grokked about Twitter, but did about, say, Facebook, is how are they making money? Um, yes, there is advertising on Twitter, but for people out there who have used both Facebook and Twitter will probably tell you the advertising that you get on Facebook and the utility of that to you as a consumer is probably higher than that which you get on Twitter, the kind of stuff that you see promoted, I overlook a whole lot more than the stuff that I see on Facebook. So I've always wondered about the long-term profitability of this uh, platform because I understood the importance of it, right? You know, I wrote this in my Detroit news piece that it is 
Uh, not contra to the people who often like to make these claims, the new public square. It is the new public square for people who are terminally online, but not for the vast majority of Americans. So it is very important to politicians and to journalists, but not really all that important to the rest of the world. Whereas Facebook was just a fundamentally different proposition and the ability of that to be monetized was so much clearer to me because the user base was larger and broader and it made a lot more sense. So again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on a podcast. I have no idea if Elon Musk is capable of making this claim uh, about a material adverse effect that Twitter's actual business as they have represented it doesn't actually reflect the business that it actually is, can be made in a court of law. But it sticks out to me as interesting. And I think it also probably marks the at least the beginning of the end of an era where you have these Silicon Valley tech companies that their profitability doesn't really matter, where they are they get a ton of money from venture capital and are able to operate on that for a period of time with the idea of perpetually leveling up and getting bought by somebody else who is uh, more profitable. I, to me, Twitter represents the possibility for where that dead ends, where that it was a company that got too large to be bought up by somebody else, at least feasibly so, and someone that we would be allowed to buy them. Um, and it also just never clearly had a way to be profitable um, beyond you know doing either looking to get bought up or going into the market and getting an IPO and getting a price off that. And I think this is where it, it does come back to the, you know, what is interesting in their fiduciary duty to shareholders that they come across this enormous offer from Elon Musk that was probably more than they ever should have gotten for the company. And uh, their initial resistance to that, um, I don't know if it violates anything legal, but it certainly violates the uh, Friedmanite idea of what the obligation of a board like that is to the shareholders of the company. When we talked earlier about the analogy of this as a dysfunctional relationship, I'm reminded of the old Norm MacDonald joke that it's funny, not like a Woody Allen movie is funny in a ha-ha sense, but funny as in a Woody Allen marriage in that it's strange. <laughs> and I think what you have here is I mean, when I go through, I don't think, I don't, I think, I don't think you can force a sale. You may be able to force a larger payout. And then it strikes me of the question, I mean, what Musk is claiming is the difference between Twitter as presented to him and Twitter as he now believes it to be are the presence of bots and that there aren't as many daily active users as is claimed um, that they make up a higher percentage. And I thought, you know, in abusive relationships, people often do things to hurt each other. And I'm wondering if this is just the cost that Elon Musk is willing to pay to go to discovery and to get those numbers he wants made public. And if his thought is, I might not want to buy Twitter because maybe he read your column and took your advice to heart and decided, you know what, I might not be able to do what I want to do to make it what I want it to be. But maybe I can destroy it or maybe I can humiliate it. Um, and that's 
that's a distinct possibility here, I think. Uh, I'm going to go back to my old political campaign roots. I don't know that Elon Musk read my column and uh, took that advice to heart, but I also don't know that he didn't. So I'm going to declare victory and I'm going to move on. We're going to move on to the end of the Supreme Court's term. Uh, We said we talked about this last week, but did not get to it. Uh, We've already discussed the decision in Dobbs, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood. Uh, I wanted to focus on another case uh, where the reaction to the decision was, to me, also very irrational, but again, just kind of demonstrated how little attention people actually pay to what the court actually does and how it highlights another problem that I have been talking about on this podcast and, you know, screaming on street corners now forever. And that was the decision in uh, the West Virginia v. EPA case where the question before the court is whether under the 1965 Clean Air Act, the EPA could be empowered so far as to essentially regulate emissions of individual power plants, in this case, coal power plants, to shut them down, in effect, to shut them down. And the holding of the court is essentially that the what we're now talking about in terms of climate change was not and could not have been envisioned in 1965. Therefore, the power granted to the EPA to regulate these individual power plants did not include the kind of power that was being utilized by the EPA in this case. And as a result, um, no, the EPA does not have that power. But the very clear message, and I saw this best distilled, again, to, to draw all these topics together in a perfect bow, in a tweet from some woman who is a professor of history at some university that I cannot quite remember and really, frankly, does not matter all that much, whose reaction to this was that the Supreme Court is out of control. And that Congress needs to act right now to do something about it before it's too late. And this struck me as utterly hilarious because what the court held in the EPA case was essentially it's not that the EPA cannot do this. They need to be empowered by Congress directly to do this if it's something you want them to do. So this woman's reaction in a way was exactly right to the wrong thing. If you want the EPA to regulate coal power plants out of existence, then Congress should pass legislation to empower the EPA to do so. Congress needs to act. Congress doesn't act and often seems like it doesn't want to act. And as a result, sometimes things don't happen that certain people wish would happen. But Congress's failure to act doesn't all of a sudden mean that the executive branch gets to do what ever it darn well pleases. And again, as I said about Dobbs, I'm not surprised that a lot of people do not understand it to that level of detail. We are very weird people in that we are interested in these kinds of things. People only see and want to interpret the policy outcomes of Supreme Court decisions, 
not what the court actually held. But the message from this and actually from the Remain in Mexico case that they decided as well, that one in favor of the Biden administration is, boy, things would sure be a whole lot better if Congress just did its job and then it wouldn't have to adjudicate cases like this. And then we all wouldn't have to deal with the whirlwind that comes from the adjudication of cases like this. There's a, a variety of levels, and I think you can take it as you have as kind of a microcosm for this, you know, lack of literacy when it comes to uh, how the law is written and interpreted and executed and judged in our country, what the Supreme Court does, what Congress ought to do. Um, I do think the circumstances of this case in particular also illustrate uh, something I've noticed uh, in general, and this is true probably of other issues too, but I, I feel like environmental activists in particular, um, they support a cause I care a lot about. I care about the earth. I care about the environment. Um, I will even say I think that there is anthropogenic climate change, and we ought to care about that and do something about that. But there are other things that we also ought to care about. For example, people having power, like electricity, right? Like we don't just shut down the power plants because we care about the climate. The reason any country has gotten to the point where they can afford to care about the environment is through development. Now, it's fine to say, why are we still on coal? Uh, why can't we transition to cleaner um, fuel sources? Well, great question to ask. We should ask an economist because they will have a very clear answer. Coal right now is cheap and things like nuclear, which might be cheap and a good alternative, are very unpopular and perhaps overregulated. So let's look at the structure of the market and why people and ask the question, why do we keep choosing coal rather than let's bring in, you know, an, uh, uh, the EPA uh, to just strong arm them out of out of business and strong arm who knows how many people out of electricity, <laughs> which is essential for so many basic things of life. Um, so, you know, and if, you know, if, if, if you're not actually, you know, causing a blackout, you're causing their electric bill to go way up in already, you know, an inflationary economy. So you're, you're hurting these people in some very serious ways. And the whole point of caring about the earth um, in addition to, yes, appreciating its beauty um, and in the goodness of creation should also be because you care about the people who happen to live in it, including the people who live in it currently right now in states where they turn on their lights because of coal power. I think I think both of these points are very interesting, and I think they both call to what this decision could potentially affect, which is a return to a sort of Republican model of governance where you have – if you have legislators making policies and not appointed bureaucrats within the administrative state, they have to answer to constituencies made up of real people that are directly affected by their decisions. This would also require our representatives to actually return to a sort of deliberative process and educate themselves or rely on fellow caucus members in their committee work to inform their voting behavior. And this could lead to you know, a more active 
House of Representatives, one that is concerned with its constituency, one that is concerned with legislation and law, has less time to fundraise, to polarize, to do all of the sort of destructive things. To appear on Fox News and MSNBC. Yes. Um, they could actually, you know, this is this is not a crisis. This is an opportunity to return to a Republican representative government and an opportunity for all of those congressmen and women to embrace their duty with gusto. I think this is, <clears throat> just to be clear about the, the politics of all of this, I think this is an opportunity to point out uh, a disconnect um, in the thinking of a lot of the people who I found to be very excised about this Supreme Court decision, that they're often the same people I hear and on certain levels share their concern about the health and the state of our democracy. There are a lot of quibbles that I have with their view of democracy um, that I am certainly not and I would also add as would be also true of the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution, not an advocate of any sense of pure democracy. Uh, however, I share their concern for the health of our Republican democratic system of government. That renders it unto me very odd that the argument that they seem to be landing on, again, I think in a very reactionary kind of way, is, but why can't we empower this bureaucracy made up of nameless people who nobody elected to do things we want it to do? And I think it is worthwhile hammering home the point that I think should be hammered home right now during essentially every single presidency, that one of the biggest problems that exists is because – and this is why if you are an environmental act activist in the way that Dylan described earlier, I think you should welcome and embrace what the court did here because for something that you regard as being so important and so serious, you want the enactment of policy that is going to continue over a period of time without it being juked around. And when you have what we have now, which is every four to eight years, when a new president is inaugurated, they issue a whole bunch of executive orders, often telling what agencies of the executive branch are supposed to do. And then when somebody from the other party is elected, which inevitably happens because there are only two options in our system, and when somebody gets very tired of the one that's been in power, they only have one place to go, that person just comes in and immediately reverses and all of that stuff and does something different. You should be, if you are someone who thinks that climate change is the gravest problem and concern that we face, welcoming of what the court did here because it is telling Congress that it should act and that we should not continue to have this policy of executive orders and orders to agencies to do this that change after four or eight years and provide no constancy whatsoever throughout time. We once had an EPA official imperil a city by shutting down a reactor. And it took the mayor of New York City being pointed out that by intervening and setting the Ghostbusters free, he would save the lives of millions of registered voters. voters. That 
is democracy at work. Oh, that's it right there. That is certainly <laughs> where we're going to call it a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. I'm excited about this program. I'm happy to be a part of it. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.